you're laying there in bed and people talk you to sleep, basically. Sort of like this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy, happy Thursday morning. It's the Tropical MBA Podcast. Guess what, boss man? It's episode 250. 250? That's a... That's a must where be has something. the time gone? Where has the time gone? We were just uh, doing a little bit of reminiscing. This one will be at tropicalmba.com slash bedphones. Today we're going to tell the story of Eric Dubbs' great business, bedphones.com. Uh, but before we get into that, boss man, you were doing, we were doing a little reminiscing before the call. Why don't you just bring us back into the world? Where were we back at episode number one? We're just talking about like the the good old days. The time we were talking about here, Dan, was uh, you had just moved. Uh, was it to Vietnam or the Philippines? Probably Vietnam. I think it was Vietnam. Two thousand eight. This was the first year, like when someone would call to to order something, you would like run to the warehouse and build it. Yeah, you know, and you were just like, I hope it was insane. Yeah, I had a studio apartment in Hillcrest, and I had a nineteen ninety eight Mustang GT Cherry. <laughs> the intake manifold had just cracked and I knew that was going to be a problem on that car. Yeah. Yeah. And I like didn't have a garage or anything like that. And I was like, man, this this is awful. Like lowered with Flowmasters. Oh yeah. By the way, that was lowered with Flowmasters. We drove through that tunnel that one time, yeah, remember? Nice yeah. Car. Sounded good. <laughs> and so I just remember being like, man, yeah. forget this. <laughs> I got to I got to downsize, man. I got to get Boys I had already boys. moved once. I'd like got rid of my garage and all this stuff. I was like, I got to downsize, man. If we're going to if we're going to make a go at this business, I got to get rid of this ridiculous vehicle. I got to get rid of this ridiculous one bedroom apartment that I'm paying too much for. It was ridiculous. 800 bucks a month. 800 bucks a month. You thought you were some kind oh of gangster back then. I don't know what you were thinking. You don't even spend 800 bucks a month nowadays. Oh, no, I spend way less than that. <laughs> We just started the business and yeah, I was kind of doing everything. So we'd get a phone call like once a day or maybe like once every other day. Maybe they'd want to order a podium. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe I, I don't know what they wanted back then. But uh, I would answer the call if they wanted to order a podium. I would like drive up to Carlsbad, I think at the time and like build the podium for them and ship it out. <laughs> but anyways, the reason this is a funny story was I was answering the phone on my Palm Trio. Do you remember those phones, Dan? Yeah, classic buddy. A little stylus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was so cool. So anyways, I just... <laughs> I just remember answering that phone in, in that apartment and it was so crazy because we get a call like once a, every other day or something. Today I was sitting in our office in San Diego. The phone was ringing nonstop and we have three people, three people picking up the phone Crazy right now. sauce. Yeah, I just thought, wow. Like, and that was basically what? Like 250 episodes ago. So, And what's the lesson there? You have a grand lesson, an internet marketing system you can base off of that or something? Anything? The lesson is like, don't lose the stylus on that trio <laughs> because it's so, it's so hard on those phones to, to hit the right button if you don't have the stylus. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. Big time. But uh, <laughs> no, it can be summed up like this. I think like stand on the top of a big enough hill and you roll the snowball down. I love the snowball thing. You roll it down and eventually like when it gets to the bottom of the hill or wherever it might be going, like you got three people on the phone, but like make sure you're standing on a, on a big enough hill that that can happen that you actually push the snowball off the ledge and allow that to happen. Yeah. 
And so a lot of people might have thought we were crazy. You know, you were in Vietnam. I was in the studio apartment, like answering the phone, driving up to Carlsbad. But like, we were getting it done, man. Yeah, we were. We we made it happen. We were scaling Mount Valet Podium. Exactly. <laughs> and that ain't easy. <laughs> Some tough holds <laughs> on that thing. All right. So speaking of product businesses, Ian, today we are going to interview a guy that we both love and respect, Eric Dubs from Bedphones.com. We met Eric on a crazy deserted island in the Philippines for the Tropical MBA seminar. And it, it was one of our favorite businesses that came through that summer. Bedphones is a great product and he's developed a great business off of it. One that's actually allowed him. It's a true four hour work week business. I mean, he's got both the mindset and the processes and the profit margins and the automated marketing systems that he can quite literally walk away from this business. And it is a hard product business. So we're going to talk about, you know, how he failed at drop shipping and what led him down the path to building a real product, competing with brands like Sony and Dr. Dre Beats and everything, and being able to turn into something that has allowed him to travel the world for the last five months with basically not even checking his email. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story. Glad you guys had a chance to record it, Dan. And Eric was definitely one of my favorite TMBA students. His story is not so dissimilar to ours. You know, I don't know if he told the story of when he was first packaging up his uh, bedphones, but he like invited his friends over. They had a pizza party. Yeah. All that stuff. And uh, it's pretty amazing. And when you think about going into an industry with competition, I mean, Eric entered probably one of the most competitive industries there are, which is like consumer electronics. Yeah. And he's done a really good job. So I think that's a, that's a testament to both Eric and also like what the market will allow. You know, he came out with a unique product. He crushed it and he's been hitting it hard for years and it's been sustainable for him. So congratulations, Eric. Yeah, and we were talking about how uh, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, Ian, they're, they're product people and, and they believe in great products and they want to start a business that way. And I think, yeah, just to pile onto that, he scaled the consumer electronics mountain, which is decidedly more ambitious than scaling Mount Valet Podium. Let's roll this interview and hear how he did it. So yesterday when Eric swung by, we talked about a lot of different things. And, and Eric walked us through how he got what he thought was his dream job, uh, designing parts of nuclear submarines, but he realized almost the first day there that his creativity was not going to be valued in such a corporate environment. So let's just, why don't we get started at the turning point when he decided that he wanted to become an entrepreneur? I think a big turning point for me was reading The 4-Hour Workweek, which is a pretty common, (laughs) common thing. It made me realize that these feelings of wanting to quit my job and go start my own thing are okay. They're not so rebellious and so wrong nowadays, especially with modern technology that allows us to live this lifestyle. It's incredible. You know, if you want to do it, you should embrace the ability. So take us back there now. What year did you read it? Do you remember? Can you remember the the date when you read the book? I probably read the book around November 2010. November 2010. Yeah. All right. Let's set the movie scene then. Young Eric Dubs has his pen protector, his security clearance, <laughs> khaki pants, and a white Oxford. What did you do? You read that book, and then you were like, I got to do something. Did you have a bunch of missteps? Or were you like, I'm going to design the world's greatest headphones? What was the next step after reading the book? Well, I first tried my hand at drop shipping, and that failed miserably. Why? Now tell us what you did. So I went and tried to find a distributor that was willing to drop ship. And I did what a lot of people do was they find this distributor that advertises drop shipping. 
I you see. Know, buy from us and drop ship. So I started putting all these products on my website. And which, what niche were they in? They were in outdoor survival gear, tactical gear, okay. like hunting knives and stuff like that. Just totally random. So you're doing this at night when you come home from your nuclear submarine job. You're, you're sending out Bowie knives or to, to random people on the internet. Absolutely. And what I realized was that there were so many other people selling the exact same products as me on their websites that it was just a constant price war. Did you make any money off of the... I think I lost money overall. Do you remember the name of the domain? The name of the domain was... Push you into the height of embarrassment. Soldiersedge.com. That's not bad. (laughs) Yeah. Cutting your teeth on website stuff, did you know web before this, or was this your first shot at SEO and PPC and WordPress or Shopify or whatever you do. you weren't doing Shopify. What what was the platform? Well, I did BigCommerce okay. when I well when I finally settled on Bedphones. Okay, not exactly sure what platform I used for Soldier's Edge. So how did you know when Soldier's Edge was going to be a bust? Like what was the fail point? And how, how long were you work tinkering with this site in the evenings? I'm not really sure how long I was working on it. You know, once I had the site up and running and started getting orders. I thought, you know, the launch was going to be this big deal and everyone was just going to flood to my site. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just thought, you know, if I build it, they will come (laughs) kind of mentality. Got a couple orders, but for the most part, it was crickets. So I started doing some research and I just found the exact same product on 100 other websites. And I realized that I would have to outmarket all these websites, many of which were a lot nicer than mine, to capture the market. And I realized that I should just create my own product. Knowing what you know now, do you feel like you could go back and make Soldier's Edge a success? Or what would you do to make it a success? I probably wouldn't do yeah. it. <laughs> I would just ditch it. The margins are so much higher, and it's so much more rewarding to me to create your own product. So you're trying to drop ship, which is interesting. A lot of people in, in our community, the DC, are, are doing thinking about doing dropshipping or looking into it. Was Bedphones the first product idea that you had at that moment? Yeah, actually. I mean, it's, I, it, it does represent a, a sort of an innovation. So how did you have the idea? First, describe what the product does, and then tell us how you have an idea like that. So Bedphones are super thin on-ear sleep headphones. So they use memory wire to wrap around your ear. They lie flat against your ear canal, and you can lay down on your pillow and fall asleep listening to music or podcasts, right. which I definitely use them for, nature sounds. They have this app called Paziz. Are you familiar with that? Yes. I think we talked about yeah. that. You know, you're laying there in bed and people talk you to sleep, basically. Sort of like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Tropical VA. Okay. Um, we'll be here all week. <laughs> and I also developed a free mobile app for iPhone and Android that will shut your music automatically when you fall That's asleep, right. which is pretty cool. So, so this is, represents a good idea, which I think people, I mean, it's hard to have a good idea. How did you have such a good idea? So the year is 2008. I'm a junior in college. Radiohead has just come out with their album In Rainbows, mm-hmm. which was one of my favorites at the time. And I'm laying in bed listening to this album with my earbuds in, and I turn on to my side, and it, it just hurt. I was like, there's no way I can fall asleep listening to music with earbuds in. Right. And normal over-the-ear headphones are just way too big and clunky. And so I thought, you know, there has to be some product out there, some super thin headphones that I can fall asleep to. So I jumped on my computer, and I really couldn't find anything. I thought to myself, hmm, that's an interesting idea. And then it wasn't until two years later 
when I was miserable at my day job that I thought, that sleep headphone idea, maybe I should try doing that. So how did you have the gall, the balls, to think that you could make headphones? I mean, to me, I think headphones are made by, like, Sony and Bose and these, like, important companies. Like, that's just not something that a solopreneur can go do. <laughs> so what was it that, that gave you the confidence to develop the product? And then what were the first steps to you developing them. I just saw that there was a huge need for a product like this. Headphones were really starting to blow up. Beats by Dre, I think, had probably just come out around that time, or they were about to, you know, hit the market, which, and they just got bought for $3.2 billion. Mm -hmm. So I saw that the headphone market was clearly growing, and I just thought that this would be a great way to kind of wedge myself in there without directly competing with all the existing headphone brands. I wasn't going to try to rank high for the term headphones. I was going to try to rank for the term sleep headphones or headphones to wear to bed, search terms like that. And so there was very little competition. There was this one product called sleep phones, but they were making a fleece headband headphones, very different from my product. And so what gave me the confidence was it seemed like there was nothing in my way. There was nothing stopping me. And I kind of also felt that I had nothing to lose. At that point, I was really sort of tired of my nine to five engineering job. So I thought I'd give it a shot. So let's talk about it then. I mean, you're at square zero. You're sitting there with the pen protector on and the Oxford shirt. You do fly to China. Do you open up SolidWorks? I mean, what is the next step? So I started just making physical prototypes, one after another. I probably made hundreds. I started spending so much time. I basically spent 40 hours a week at my day job. I'd come home. I'd work 40 hours a week on what was at the time some sleep headphone project. I hadn't named it Bedphones yet. I basically disowned everyone I knew at that point. I became a hermit. For me, it was I need to get this business off the ground. Nothing else matters. And so I stopped hanging out with everyone, even my own roommate. Sorry, Ross. (laughs) I basically was living this kind of like double life where, you know, I'd go to work and I couldn't tell anyone what I would do after work. You know, I didn't want my boss or my coworkers to find out that I was working on another product so that I could eventually quit because I was afraid that they would fire me. And I needed to keep working so that I could save up enough money to make a purchase order. Where are you getting the stuff for the prototypes? Even this seems like a a complex thing to me. I would just go to the hardware store and just buy materials. I would jump online. I would go to McMaster Car, which is a big online hardware store in Mm -hmm. the U.S., which is amazing, and everything ships next day. Yes. So that's great. They're famous for their phone book that every manufacturer has. Yeah. And so, you know, I started spending so much time on this. And also what I was doing was, you know, I was seeing what other headphone companies were doing. I was buying up headphones left and right and destroying them. Right. You know, I spent a lot of money. I have a, a like a headphone budget to buy headphones, take them apart, tear them apart, whatever, and learn about how they work and really become somewhat of an expert on headphones. When you got to the point where you had a prototype the bedroom prototype that you felt like might be something, what was your next step in terms of reaching out to suppliers? Before I reached out to the suppliers, I then made sure to take the prototype to the next level. I fired up CAD, Solid Edge, and designed the thing in 3D and had many, many prototypes made, you know, in plastic. And nowadays, it's so easy. I could design a new prototype, send the file to California, 
And then by 9.30 a.m. the next day, I'm holding the physical prototype in my hand. And that's just crazy. That's insane. That technology that allows you to do that. So, and this is a 3D printing technology? Yes. Yeah, 3D printing. Online, basically mail-order 3D printing. I still don't have my own 3D printer. But, <laughs> Ian uh, said he's going to get one. Ian said he's going to yeah. get one? It's kind of hard to travel around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Although they're getting smaller. Yeah. And so I took the prototype and I shipped it to China. I basically said, I don't want to have too much miscommunication, so here's exactly what I want. Beautiful. So how did you find the Chinese supplier that you sent the prototypes to? So I started out searching for a speaker manufacturer that was able to manufacture a speaker as thin as the one that I'm using for bedphones. And bedphones are the thinnest headphones in the world, so they really need a very specialized, custom-made speaker. So I eventually found a factory that was willing to make a super thin speaker at a fairly low MOQ, which was 2,000 units. So I thought, okay, that sounds like a good amount. I didn't really know whether that was too much or too little, but I thought, you know, if I sell 2,000 units, 2,000 bedphones, I'll definitely be happy. Mm -hmm. So I basically started developing the product around this speaker because that was the main component. And then one day, someone suggested to me that I use memory wire for the ear hook to make it infinitely adjustable. So I found that material as well, and so I started making these infinitely adjustable memory wire ear hook headphones, and I was basically gluing everything together with hot glue at the so, time. So you were ordering the things from China and then assembling them in the U.S.? Yes, Wow. And how long did you do that for? Well, not for sale. I ordered a box of 400 bedphone speakers. Right. And then just went to town, just soldering left and right, just making tons and tons of prototypes. Once I had the prototype ready, you know, I sent it to the factory. And then it was still many months of back and forth. I had, at this point, moved home. So after 14 months at my corporate job, I saved up gave my boss my two weeks notice, left and moved back in with my parents. Yes, the entrepreneurial tool known as mom's basement. Yeah, <laughs> I launched out of my mom's basement. Thanks, mom <laughs> and dad. Let's talk a little bit about the back and forth part. Yeah. Like you've had a lot of challenges when working with China. What mm -hmm. have you learned through that process? I mean, if you were to go back, would it still take so many back and forth? Were there things that you would do differently now? Or is it just a cutting your teeth process in terms of getting a, a product to market? I think it's a cutting your teeth process. It requires a lot of patience, which I didn't really have at the time. And I've kind of learned to develop that over the years. I think just starting a business in general requires a lot of patience. However long you think it's going to take to get something manufactured, double that time, triple that time, <laughs> yeah, quadruple it sometimes. <laughs> it's tough. I had some help. I had some mentors at the time who helped me out a lot. But I also had a desire to learn on my own. I wanted to go factory direct. I didn't want to hire an agent at the time because I wanted to learn how this whole process works. Now that I've been through the process, I would gladly hire an agent. From a marketing perspective, let's talk about the launch of Bedphones and why you feel like it was a success. Oftentimes, Ian and I will say to people, well, maybe you should think about doing products that are over $200 because you don't need to sell that many of them in order to make a living. Now, you're doing a product that's at a $30 price point. I think you even launched a $20 price point. The new bedphones are actually 60 Excellent. So I got a pair of them. They're great. So what was the process? Why did these things work in your view? What marketing approaches worked for bedphones? I think the app was invaluable 
for the launch. Because not only was this a new kind of headphone that you can wear to sleep, but there was an accompanying app that works with any kind of headphones, a completely free app that will shut your music automatically when you fall asleep. And it has some other cool features too. I basically aimed it at tech bloggers, the whole product, and, and that those are the guys I contacted. So it basically started on August 1st, 2011, I sent one email to Engadget. They ran a story on Bedphones, and then it spread across the internet like wildfire. It was on Gizmodo, it was on Lifehacker, it was on okay. MSNBC. Back us up now. How did you approach the people at Engadget in such a way that they would actually write about you? I think I just had a product that they thought was interesting. It was a really nonchalant email. Hey guys, just launched this new product. They're sleep headphones with an accompanying app that shuts your music when you fall asleep. Check them out here. Didn't really put too much thought into it. And what did your website look like at that time? Was it was it beautiful? Was there social proof elements on it? Was it a piece of crap landing page? Or It was pretty nice. I had a lot of help, especially for my older brother, who is a creative. He's a, a copywriter by trade. But he's got a great eye, and so he sat down with me and really helped me work on the copy and the design. I hired a photographer. I think good pictures are absolutely necessary. If you don't have good pictures on your website, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So the first six months, you start to get traction. How are you spending your time? Are you pulling your hair out like, I don't know what I'm doing? Or are you swimming in money, Scrooge McDuck style? What are those first six months of a successful takeoff? You're finally getting lift. How are you feeling? How are you spending your time? So that was one of the most exciting moments of my life when I first launched because of all the publicity. Bedphones were selling at about you know 250 pairs a day. I actually had to hire four of my high school friends and pay them with beer and pizza to come <laughs> into my parents' basement and box and ship these headphones all over the country. At the time, we weren't shipping internationally. So it was, I basically spent all my time running back and forth to Staples buying ink cartridges because we kept running out of ink because we were printing so many shipping labels. <laughs> when Engadget and all these folks write about you, I'm assuming that you bought the MOQ of 2,000 units. You are getting into a position very quickly where you're going to be out of stock. Right. How did you handle that? Kind of freaked out a little bit and contacted the factory right away and said, okay, now I want to order 5,000 units. And then I ordered 5,000 units. And then a few months later, the product was featured on Dr. Oz, the entire audience won a pair, Good Morning America, <laughs> Eyewitness News. And, you know, it's great. But it's really stressful because then those 5,000 units were gone. And then I was like, okay, I need to order 10,000 units. And so I basically kept reinvesting all the money I was making. You know, I wasn't living like a rich person. I was still living in my parents' house. Yes. And so I took all that money that I was making and basically just sent it right back to China. <laughs> right. To order more inventory. Looking back on it, it sounds like you got really lucky. Right? I mean, a lot of success stories sound like that. Yeah. I suppose when you look back on it, do you feel like that was the case? Obviously, you worked your face off. What are the elements that you did right that you feel like you can take into future ventures? And what elements were just no one can predict how these things are going to take off? I mean, it's very, a lot of people, they have ideas that might depend on getting on Dr. Oz. In this case, I mean, did it hinge on that? If, if you wouldn't have gotten the press, would you, do you think it would have worked? Yeah, I think I would have been fine. I would have found a more systematized marketing strategy early on instead of focusing on press. Press is great, but, you know, your sales spike and then the next day it's half that, the next day it's half that. You know, within a week, the press is over. Right. It's gone. You're back to normal. To me, that wasn't success. 
Success was knowing how much money am I putting into AdWords? How much money am I paying my affiliates? Can I get a consistent supply of income going without all these, you know, this big roller coaster? You have this interesting strategy called business is your own personal ATM. And I want to flesh this out a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you've had an incredible track record with automation. So you've had this great success. Now you've automated yourself out of that business to a degree that's very rare. Lay out the business as your own personal ATM thing. <laughs> Where did you get this attitude? You were saying you're not the passion guy, you're a practical guy. Explain to me that. You know, I think it's important to follow your passion up into a point. At the end of the day, you gotta pay the bills. You have to have an income to support, you know, a location independent lifestyle. It costs money to be able to travel around and experience new things. Not always, of course. To me, the best businesses are the ones that are automated as much as possible or outsourced as much as possible to the point where the people in charge can spend majority of their time growing the business, which is something that you've talked about over and over again. I read the book Work the System by Sam Carpenter, and that along with your podcast, I think it might have been number... 134 yeah. on SOPs nice. was really a game changer for me because I realized that if I could just write out all these processes and hand them over to an assistant, I would never have to do those tasks ever again. <laughs> and that was just such an amazing concept to me. Yeah. And so I really fully embraced it. When I'm evaluating my business, First, I think, what can I automate? Anything that's left over, that's the day-to-day, -day, I try to hand over to an assistant. That being said, I did my own customer service for the first year of selling. So if you had sent an email to uh, info at bedphones.com, I was the one you would talk to. <laughs> the reason I did that was because I wanted to talk to my customers. I wanted to hear what issues they were having with the product and talk to them and get feedback from them and learn how I can improve the product and also learn how to deal with customers. People can get pretty angry. They can get pretty upset when things don't go their way. And so I think it's kind of a, a skill to kind of talk them down from that and make them happy. And so I took all this knowledge and used it to create SOPs to give to my virtual assistant so that she could treat customers with the same care and respect that I was treating them with. So you're running your whole Bedphones empire with a bunch of SOPs and one VA in the Philippines. That's Truth. it. That's it. What happened when we were talking at Tropical MBA, I remember you were going to go hire somebody and then you hired somebody that had gone to an Ivy League school and they were working in New York City. What did you learn from that experience and why doesn't that person continue to run your business? The guy I hired was great, you know, super smart guy. You know, I think one of the things I realized was I didn't need to hire someone to be my employee and work next to me all day. I started to feel kind of tied down because at that point I had to get an office to house the employee and I had to go to the office to communicate with the employee. And so I kind of felt like I was working for Bedphones, not on Bedphones. Interesting. My so, job was now to manage. Did you lose anything by going from some hyper dynamic smart person to ostensibly somebody who's just following the process at a basic level? Yeah, there are definitely some drawbacks, not really having someone to always bounce ideas off of and talk to and someone who truly cares about your business. At the end of the day, I'm kind of a solo. A lot of people fantasize about that, like that dynamic person and they're going to help you revolutionize yeah. your business or whatever. Yeah. A lot of times that investment doesn't pay off that way or, or that 
even if you have that dynamic person, yeah. ultimately it comes down to how good your processes are. Yeah. And at the end of the day, no one cares about your business as much as you do. No one's going to bed, staying up all night thinking about how to increase your bottom line. You know, that's on you as a founder. And so you should focus on that, but not focus on the little nitty gritty day to day. Let's talk about your pricing. Because we used to talk a lot about headphones were twenty dollars, and then I was like, "Well, make make." I remember saying like, "Why don't you make them 30 And you're like, "You're crazy!" And now you, I think you're crazy. You're going to sixty. <laughs> How did the mindset evolve around that? How did your customers react when you doubled the price of this product? Doubling the price of the product, I think, was one of the best decisions I've made with headphones. Actually, I didn't just arbitrarily double the price. I made the product better. I increased the quality of manufacturing. I increased the design. I spent a lot of time redesigning the product, making it 15% thinner than the original. I added an optional inline microphone with remote, higher quality cable. And all those things did add to the cost of each pair. Because there's so little competition for a product like this, I had the ability to double the price. Isn't this like latte pricing though? It's like a coffee is $2, a latte is four fifty, but you're just adding milk, which costs five cents, not even five cents. I mean, you're adding a better cable? Come on, come me a break, it's $60. <laughs> your margins must be fabulous, right? Yeah, they're pretty good. <laughs> um, I mean, did your sales plummet when you, but you're selling it for double, so it doesn't matter? Or did it have any noticeable impact just to I mean, more than double your price over the course of a year and a half. It almost had no impact on sales. Well, so essentially my revenue stayed about the same, but now I only had to sell half as much of the product. So it was great. And I also added a really nice retail box, which again is expensive, but I think it really adds to the whole user experience, you know, getting this beautiful box and opening it and there's the headphones inside and their case with the eye mask. You were mentioning that you feel like most entrepreneurs undervalue the importance of profitability. And it's obviously it's profitability that in, in some ways drives this for you, what have you learned about that over the years? Yeah, I've learned that people price their products or price themselves way too low, it seems. And you guys have said this, double your price. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, you should experiment. I think there's a sweet spot with it. If you're offering a truly great product that's unique and no one else is offering it and you can double your price, then you probably should. You should at least try it and see what happens. So you got all this profitability you mentioned this affiliate strategy that you're employing that's working quite well. I'm curious to hear about that. I've not, I've not heard of anybody employing this yet, so let me know how it works. I put bedphones on a mobile advertising platform called Tapjoy, and the way Tapjoy works is you're playing a game on your phone or your iPad, and you want to get more points, you want to get more wampum, you want to get a sword or get to the next level, you have the option of watching you know, a car commercial or signing up for a magazine subscription, or you could buy a pair of bedphones and you'll get points to use in your game, whatever game you're playing. And whenever that happens, I give a flat fee to Tapjoy per sale. And it's worked amazingly well. Huh. And so the reason why it works is because Bedphones are being advertised to people on their smartphones who are playing games and are most likely wearing headphones when they see the advertisement. So not surprisingly, people are willing to spend $60 in the middle of playing a game to not only get a pair of bedphones, but also get more points, 
and move on to the next level. Huh. So has PPC, traditional PPC worked as well for you? Not nearly as well. You mentioned earlier automated approaches to marketing. So yeah. let's move into automation just a little bit. Obviously, the tap joy is one. Yeah. What are some other approaches to marketing that you've automated? Well, I don't do my own PPC anymore. I think PPC can be a massive time suck. I think it's imperative for most people to hire a manager, someone who knows what they're doing. So your approaches to automation, I mean, you have walked away from this company for five months here in Bali. Does that mean like you're checking email every day or what does that mean to walk away from the company? No, I'm working on my next line of products. Really? Yeah. And so you're not worried about that this company is going to go away? Are you worried that you'll lose a strategic advantage? It just keeps, I mean, you're worried it's not going to grow. I mean, what? that's an incredible mindset thing. Most entrepreneurs, they grow a business that's successful like yours and they just can't get away from it, becomes a force in their life. It's been a real learning process, especially over the past five months, keeping myself from spending every waking moment, because there's always gonna be stuff you can do to improve your bottom line in your business. You could spend endless amounts of hours behind a computer, but at some point you just have to be proud of what you've done and sit back and focus on something else. Once a business has been running for a few years, you wanna explore new things. You want to come out with new products. I say one of the hardest things I find for for successful entrepreneurs is finding something better to do. They have a hard time with that. They have a hard time being like, hey, wait, remember. That's why I like your metaphor of a business as your own personal ATM. Uh, But it's difficult not to get attached to it. So you found something better to do. Partly hang out in the rice fields of Ubud, but partly work on a new product. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Okay, so I am very passionate about ergonomics, specifically computer ergonomics. I go into a co-working space and everyone, and it's a sea of people hunched over their MacBooks. Most people don't know this, but hunching and curving your spine actually creates a primal response of releasing cortisol to raise your blood pressure. And the reason for that is when you're curving your spine, you're making yourself smaller so that a predator doesn't see you. Hmm. So most people on their computers are in this basically chronic state of stress a chronic state of hiding from a saber-toothed tiger exactly just checking my gmail exactly and so it might not really affect you now but down the line years from now when you're hunched over it could be from all those years spent behind a desk at hmm. your computer what i'm working on is i'm creating an ultralight ultra thin laptop stand that puts your laptop at the correct height which is putting the screen at eye level so that you can use an external keyboard and mouse and use your computer in an upright position so that you're not looking down at the screen. One of the things I'm seeing about all the three niches that you've selected so far is that they all seem to leverage some kind of trend. You know, like people always like listening to audiobooks and having a smartphone by their side. Now you're on that trend, even with the survival gear site. I mean, that's a trend. Is that by design or do you think you're just a forward-thinking guy or do you think that's important for entrepreneurs? I mean, these are all issues that are important to me. You know, people listen to music in bed and they can't fall asleep without listening to music or a podcast or an audiobook. So I just want to make sure they do it safely with a pair of headphones that aren't going to get jammed inside their ear canal. <laughs> with the fold-up laptop stand, I think using products like that, after years and years and years, it's going to really mitigate the harmful effects of using a laptop, you know, in terms of posture. You know, I'm also a big fan of Flux, which you might have talked about. So also reducing the amount of eye strain. 
I think of a laptop as a tool. It's a tool that should be used as efficiently as possible, and then you should get off of it. Do you think Bali is a good place for entrepreneurs? You spent five months up in Ubud. What do you think about it? I think Bali is a great place for entrepreneurs. It was so refreshing moving out of New York City and moving here and meeting a lot of solo entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs who are you know, bootstrapped and are location independent. They can truly take their work anywhere because it's on their laptop. In New York City, you kind of get more of the big funded you know, VC style startups. For me, I don't take outside funding. I believe in bootstrapping. I think that if you can't create a minimum viable product yourself, then you should skip on to the next idea. Wow, I like that. It's a great piece of advice. So a lot of people listen to our show because they like that we do real products. Right. And so I'm sure that people are going to look to your story and they're going to say, that's really inspirational. Here's a guy who sat in his garage and like ordered stuff from Radio Shack for half a year, you know, and just tried to <laughs> solder it together. And if you have any piece of advice for aspiring product developers, what are some things that you're going to do differently in the future as well? I think one of my biggest pieces of advice would be to make a prototype and then make another prototype and just keep working and making these quick and dirty prototypes until you get something that works. I think a lot of people, they come up with an idea and then they're like, oh, I think that's a good idea. I'm not really sure. Maybe I'll try it out. Well, make a prototype, you know, see it, hold it in your hand and see if it actually works for you. And now with the proliferation of 3D printing, there's no excuse for not getting something made. You know, it's a few hundred bucks. If you don't know how to design a product yourself, you could hire someone on Odesk in an hour and have them make it for you. Yeah, and a lot of people, I mean, I see this drop shipping movement. We did a podcast, I don't know, a few months ago called Drop Ship and Roll or something like that. And the point of the show was drop shipping is kind of this stopgap. It's tempting to think if you see like all these people getting into products and stuff that maybe that ship has sailed. But I think it's the opposite, that the fact that these tools exist for us is there's more opportunity than ever for people to develop. I was, we were just talking like there's not really a great traveling podcasting mic. I mean, somebody could sit down and develop one of those and, and, and it would be interesting for the DC. I mean, part of the thing, when I look at my friends that are doing consulting or information products businesses, sometimes they don't hold their feet to that prototype fire. And that can be the part of the benefit of getting into a products business is you pulled out that prototype last night at dinner and you had four buyers at the table right away. For a $100 freaking product, you know? I mean, we wanted one, and that's it. That's a great way to, to, to do business there. I like that. So so products for the win, right? Products <laughs> for think, the win. You think, you're, I mean, you don't, you don't feel tempted. Do you look at your info product friends or your SaaS friends, and do you feel like those guys were way smarter? Or do you feel like there's still a ton of opportunity for location-independent entrepreneurs in product? I think there's a, definitely a big opportunity to create products and live anywhere you want. You don't need to go to China to get these products made. You can get them made in pretty much any country you're currently living in. You know, it's great if you can create an info product, if that's your thing. If you know how to create a good info product, then by all means, that's what you should do. If you're a software developer, then you should probably create some software. I'm not going to try to create software because that would require me to give myself a very big education as well as likely have to hire people to create the actual product, the actual working minimum viable product for me. So I'm going to stick to what I know. As an administrative point, are you willing to give the listeners some kind of sense of where the business is at financially, like in terms of a ballpark figure? Or are you willing to say something like how successful it is? We're coming up on 25,000 units since launch. Total sold. Total sold. So I'm pretty happy about that. 
Excellent. One of the reasons it's such a pleasure to talk to you and such a pleasure to work with you is, is you're such an implementer and you've got great ideas. Well, thank you for uh, coming on the Tropical MBA podcast. It's, I'm surprised it's taken this long, actually, to have you on. Uh, thank you. All right, guys, if you'd like to get in touch with Eric or leave a comment about this episode or ask further questions about what he did to make bedphones.com such a great success, check out tropicalmba.com slash bedphones. We'll have all the contact information there. And thanks again to Eric for sharing the story. You know, Ian, I was reading Jason Cohen's blog the other day, and he was talking about how you just don't hear a lot of like mid-stage success stories because you hear a lot of, I'm going to do this kind of stuff. And then you hear a lot of, I just did this kind of stuff, right? Or like, I failed or I, I sold my company or whatever. Um, it's rarer to hear the people that are like, by the way, I'm making a lot of money right now doing this. Yeah. You know, because those- <laughs> they, don't like to, they don't like to do a lot of talking, you know, but Jason also had a pretty good explanation. To me, it's really exciting to hear guys like Eric who are just, you know, out there making a great product, making a great living and uh, being willing to share the story. So, boss man, this week, it's time to do some rap and reviews. Uh, what record are you going to spin for us today? I'm going to play another oldie but a goodie, Dan. This is the Wu-Tang Clan with Cream. And do you know what Cream stands for? Lay it on me. Stands for Cash Rules Everything Around Me. So yeah, buddy. <laughs> Cash Take Rules Everything Around Me. Cream, get the money. Here we go. Shake this shit. Yeah. I grew up on the crime side, the New York Times side. Staying alive was no job this week, Ian, we've got an email from Scott. Can't thank you guys enough for your podcast. If only I'd found you earlier. My initial idea totally tanked and was a complete waste of time. I spent 10K building it, and it's earned 1K in two years. Woo! We've had, we've had successes of that sort, boss man. But my next idea cost me about $900 to prove its viability, and it's generating about $1,000 a month. The harsh part is guys like you and Mike and Rob over at Startups for the Rest of Us, shout out to you guys, provided me the framework to fully understand the futility of my past. Seriously, don't underestimate your impact. Every day I'm facing the reality of this is what Dan and Ian said would happen. When you resonate with the market, they will come. Anyway, I've had a few beers after the footy. We won and walked past a bar with this sign. It says, I'm a baller, baby. So Scott sent us that nice photo all the way from the great country of Australia. If you'd like to send us a shout Feel free to email me, Dan, at tropicalmba.com. Love to post your pictures at the blog. These pictures will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash bedphones. And feel free to give us a voicemail at tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. As always, Boss Man and I will be back to talk your ears off next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.